Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Welcome to Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, featuring influencers, creatives, and top leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. And welcome everyone to Synapse Think Tank of the Air. I'm your host, Steve LeBeau, and today we'll all be healthier after this program because we're going to talk about wellness, we're going to talk about sleep and dreams and, uh, and acupressure and other things, I'm sure. Our guest today, we have with us Sarah Moe of Sleep Health Specialists. We have Sheila Asato, a dream worker and teaching artist, and Molly Glasgow, and her, her, her business name explains it all. She's with Point Acupressure. So, um, Sarah, tell me how you got into sleep, just in a brief little story. What was, was there a moment when you said, ah, sleep, that's the future for me? There was. I believe it was about an hour into my first class in my polysomnography program. I had already decided. <laughs> oh, polysomnography, and that polysomnography, sounds like a sleep-related. It uh, is, yep. It, uh, it is the, the word for sleep studies. So I decided to go to school to learn how to do sleep studies and realized I was in the right place very quickly. Wow. Yeah. And, but you signed up for the class, so there was some... I did. I found it fascinating. Uh, I understand that all medical fields are very important, but I felt like the lack of even awareness or respect for the field of sleep had always interested me. So Okay. And you didn't fall asleep in class. Well, I didn't say that. No. Okay. Molly, how did you get uh, involved in, in doing what you do with uh, acupressure? So when I was a kid, my dad would press down on the top of my shoulder, mm. and I would immediately feel like I needed to stop moving. So I thought he had a magic finger for my entire life. <laughs> he still might. But um, when I was in my early 20s, I had developed an autoimmune disorder throughout my teen years and had gotten to the point where I was really sick and was looking for um, alternatives because um, Western medicine just wasn't giving me the answers. And so I went and took some classes. I was living in the Bay Area at the time. And um, like Sarah said, kind of right into one of the first classes, I started to not only understand what was going on in my body, but it just it clicked and it made sense with what um, parts of me knew that I didn't even consciously know I knew. Hmm. Well, that's good. It, it well, kind of a feeling, very, very non-Western thing. And and Sheila, how did you get into dreaming? I know you started out as an artist, but where did the dreams come in? Well, as an artist, I always found dreaming was a really rich resource for finding imagery and working through problems with my artwork. But it wasn't until I was living in Japan and we had adopted a boy over there. And I started having really intense nightmares, and they had a tenor that was completely different than any other kind of dream I had had before. They literally grabbed me and insisted on intention. And so the biggest um, dream I had was that our son's birth mother had gone to America, gotten an advanced degree in finance, came back to Japan, and found a loophole in the adoption and wanted to get him back. And that's exactly what happened. It became the second most complicated adoption case in Japanese court history, according to the judge we worked with. Well, so and, you, you dreamed this, mm -hmm, and, and so it was one of those uh, uh, fortune-telling dreams. You, well, you, not a fortune-telling dream. A pre, but precognizance? We exactly. We call it a precognitive dream. Okay, I better get my terminology straight. And fortune-telling sometimes historically has been associated with dreaming, but more with kind of um, misusing the dreams. But in this case, it did give me information about something that was coming, and the dreams prepared me. And not only that, in the dreams to follow, I started getting advice about how to get through the Japanese legal system, hmm. which I had no unconscious knowledge of, and to this day I still can't explain. So when I came back to the United States in 1999, I pursued a master's degree at St. Mary's University and wanted to learn more about this, and that's how it led to a career as a dream worker. Wow. And I, I should say that, uh, Sheila, we worked on a book together, so we were acquainted. And, and of course, Sarah Moe, she's a co-founder of Synapse. And then a frequenter of Synapse is Molly. So there's all kind of a intertwined connections here. 
And not to mention the fact that I sleep, <laughs> I dream. And then I don't know if I told you this story, but I but I discovered acupressure by myself once. Um, back in the 70s, there was a book called Sugar Blues. And it was um, about how you could start, you know, if you had too many headaches or if you're not feeling well, it could be you're having too much sugar because that throws off your system. I'm sure there's a, a word for it these days, hypoglycemia or whatever. But um, I grew up addicted to Excedrin, which was the top painkiller of the day, because I played football. I was a lineman, and in those days you would bump your heads to, you know, you you just ram your head into the other guy's head, and that's called sportsmanship. I knew every day I got a headache, so I knew I'd get a headache, so I had preemptory Excedrin before I went out into the field. And then all through college and even into graduate school, I would do that. I would take preemptory Excedrin. Oh, I think I might be getting a headache. And then I read this book, Sugar Blows, and that's one of the things you have to watch out for is is aspirin and painkiller. So I decided to not have any painkillers, and I had a terrible headache, and I was laying on my bed with my head up against the wall, and I just, in a fit, I thought, I'm just going to, kind of a masochistic fit, I pushed the most painful point into the wall, and and then it went away, and then another painful point, and so I pushed that until it went away, and I kept pushing painful points, all of a sudden I didn't have a headache anymore, is that that the basics pretty much of, uh, (laughs) of acupressure? I probably wouldn't recommend that people push their heads into a wall. But if that's what works, do <laughs> do your thing. Um, so that is. You don't you know, have a wall in your uh, office. I do have walls. I'm lucky that my office does have walls. Um, but you're right. So our our bodies know how to take care of ourselves, and um, we have kind of intrinsic instinctual wisdom with that. And then there's also the wisdom that's passed down to us through generations. And while we might have different languages or words to describe this type of healing that our bodies can do for ourselves, we can do for ourselves, or others can do for us, um, it all comes back to the same body, the same anatomy, the same body map. And so what you're describing probably sounds like there was a buildup of pressure in your head, and by pushing on these points, it was releasing or dispersing that pressure, mm-hmm. which is exactly what causes a headache. Um, you know, when you take a painkiller that is going to reduce inflammation. So in one way or another, disperse that inflammation, disperse that pressure. So that would make a lot of sense that it relieved the pressure, the headache in your head. Hmm. And Sheila, I know you've said it in Japan. What's the difference between acupressure and shiatsu? Well, I think a better one would be to ask here is the acupressure specialist. No, what's, what's the difference? So um, there are different ways, there are different types of acupressure, just like there are different types of massage. Um, the acupressure that I practice is a very light touch acupressure. And so I am just holding the points and feeling for different pulsations, which are not your vascular pulse. It's not your heart pulse, but it's an energetic pulse in your body, just like our nervous system will function on, on energetic impulses. That's the sort of thing that I'll be kind of tactilely feeling for. So you don't press hard like I did against the wall. Not usually. Every once in a while. So um, there are certain points to relieve pain or certain points to, say, use in childbirth where pressure is really useful. Um, But usually when I'm working with clients, I'm using a light touch. And I I focus primarily on working with physical and emotional trauma. So that's also a part of it is that a lot of it is is balancing the body without trying to um, or without wanting to interfere with any boundaries in a way that would actually make the healing process not as possible. Hmm. Um, That doesn't mean that types of healing work that use pressure or movement or stroking on the body aren't useful. It's just the type that I practice, the one that that, um, fits most with what I know, what you know, my body might carry and what I've learned. So to answer the question, different um, different types of acupressure, some will use a lot of pressure, especially things like trigger point therapy where you're pushing down on a point to relieve the pain. Um, shiatsu sometimes is just holding the points like I hold them. Other times there's um, tapping or pushing or stroking connected with it, either along the meridian. A meridian is a line that runs through your body and connects to your organ um, which connects to the energy of that organ. And we can to, down to go the there knee, if you down want. Down to the knee bone. Right. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and and so just like there are different types of shiatsu, there are different types of acupressure. It's just a way of stimulating the point itself. Huh. What I do is, I, once I learned about my head, then every, any part of my body I would press down, but I'd press it like hell. You know, I would just, you know, try to just have it all disappear. 
Well, that's interesting you bring that up because in the dreaming, I've had really important healing dreams where I've been bitten by either a serpent or a dog. And one in particular was the point in that webby place between the thumb and the first finger. So my first session of acupuncture, I went over and the practitioner put a needle in there. I said, just test it out because I keep getting bitten there by these important animals in the dreams. And sure enough, that whole area of my hand was black and blue the next day. And she noticed that there was so the key there or the energy needed so much attention there that that became really important. So I've asked my acupuncturist since then or massage therapist, if there's an animal that bites me in the dream, could you please also work with that spot and see what happens? And Mm. it's actually ended up being very helpful. Gosh. Can I ask you a question about that? Sure. So that point is... uh, large intestine four, but that's a point and one of our four main gates. But the large intestine deals with getting rid of what no longer serves us in our body, just like we have to mm. get rid of what no longer serves us physically. Is that to, to is let that, go of something. Exactly. Yeah, well, but, and letting go might be attached to the lungs too, but but you're right. Gosh, I'm going to be so uh, analyzed before I get out of here. <laughs> well, let's... let's uh, but does that align with... Yeah, it actually does, because that's right after I returned to the United States, because the son we adopted has autism, and we couldn't get the services he needed in Japan. And so when I came here after a four-year court battle to um, get his adoption through, and not having him diagnosed properly, coming here and finally getting a diagnosis of autism, starting to finally get help, that was the turning point where I could app at finally start to focus on my own healing and start to let go a lot of uh, the anger I had and frustration and gosh. all the everything on every level that had come with that difficult adoption and parenting a child with autism in a place where I was told there was nothing wrong with him, but it was me. Hmm. And it ended up it wasn't. It was autism. Wow. Now, um, Sarah, you were into sleep before it became fashionable. <laughs> I mean, true. right now, uh, what, after uh, Ariana Huffington wrote a, dream, uh, a sleeping book, then everyone worries about sleep, the Correct. doctors are getting into it, but you were an early adopter. This is true. I've been in sleep medicine for over 12 years, and I am by no means one of the pioneers, but definitely been at it longer than most. Um, Minnesota is interesting in that it is a very dense uh, kind of area for sleep medicine uh, because we have HCMC, which was one of the original hospitals in the country to help uh, develop diagnosing sleep disorders. So because of that, we have some of the greatest sleep physicians and even education systems around sleep medicine in the country. Yeah. Gosh, because now we know if you don't sleep, you don't dream, but but also a lot of other bad things happen if you don't sleep. A lot of bad things happen and a lot of times they can be uh, caused by poor sleep. Unfortunately, our healthcare system is slightly off in that. The, I think the current amount of sleep education that medical students are receiving right now is three hours, which is twice as much as it was when I was going to school for sleep medicine. Really? It's so going have, down? Well, no, it, it went up. Uh, it went up. From, it was an hour oh, and a half. Now they have three hours of sleep education in their eight years of med school. Uh, so these practitioners are coming out into the field and saying, you know, let's start treating all of these issues for our patients without understanding that sleep can be the actual underlying issue. For example, I've had so many patients say, I've been tired my entire life, and I told my doctor, and they went through all these tests, let's check your thyroid, let's, you know, this and that, and then they finally ended up speaking to somebody else saying, hey, maybe you should have a sleep study, and finding an undiagnosed sleep disorder that they had been living with unnecessarily, if their primary had only been able to say, hey, let's look at your sleep if you're tired. Right. Can I just ask something? So as the um, amount of time doctors are spending on studying sleep is increasing. I'd like to know how much time has been devoted to dream education. I am not sure. I don't think that's a part of the <laughs> curriculum for for sleep. Uh, dreaming has always been something that in, in my education has been associated with psychology, but that was the same with sleep as well. You don't get sleep classes, uh, whereas it is considered the third pillar of health. We are all receiving uh, educational classes around nutrition and physical education classes around the importance of exercise, which are the other two pillars of sleep. Uh, and yet in our school systems, there are no classes on sleep that other the third of your p- life. Pillows of sleep? Pillars. Oh. The third pillar of sleep. Okay. Of, of health, sleep, exercise, and diet. 
Okay, I got to get this straight. So can I make a little plug here for any professionals out there or just lay people would like to learn more about dreaming? The International Association for the Study of Dreams now offers CEUs that are approved by the American Psychological Association. CEUs, in, uh, continuing education right, credit? And, and in dream studies. So you can oh. go to the um, IASD website, which is IASD.org, and, um, or inter- Let's see, asdreams.org, forgive me. Well, and there you can find online um, education about dream studies, including dreaming and trauma and other things. Well, well dreams are something that I think uh, were turned upside down. I think it used to be one of the most important things in uh, 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 that for humans, right, to talk about their dreams. The, I, I remember reading in the Bible as a kid, you know, during Sunday school, well, so-and-so had a dream of, uh, you know, seven fat cows. That meant seven years of good grain or whatever, and then seven skinny cows, seven years of... And, and uh, you know, and then I wondered, why don't we have those dreams these days so we can figure out the economy and plan out uh, when Wall Street's going to crash and stuff? Well, we're still dreaming. We always have been. And if we don't have four to six cycles of dreaming per night, it's very hard to maintain our emotional health as well as to retain any kind of learning we do because that's where um, our learning consolidation, memory consolidation takes place. But what's interesting is that many cultures still value dreams, but they did fall out of favor in Western culture, and they came back into awareness through Freud and later through Jung. That was an interesting turning point. But to this day, we still tend to associate dreaming in Western culture with pathology. Oh, something wrong with you. And actually, dreaming is really essential to our health and to our creativity. And an absence of dreaming is very, very um, challenging. It's very difficult to maintain your health. So I always say, why do you think we use sleep deprivation as a form of torture during wartime? Mm. I also find it interesting that you don't remember your dreams unless you wake up out of them. So dream recall only happens when you are exited from that REM cycle. And a lot of times that can be indicative of a, a health disorder, something like sleep apnea or too much blue light consumption, that kind of thing. So if you are remembering every single dream you have, I would say you should probably get a sleep study because you should be sleeping through some of those cycles. <laughs> if, if you remember too many dreams, well, there's something wrong with It's great you. to remember them and it's great because it is important to, you know, hey, that's how we got penicillin. It's it's wonderful. But at the same time, it That was from a dream? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. I thought we left an orange out on the ledge. There was an idea to do it in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but I do think it's it's interesting that it's um, it's so closely correlated, but also another one of those sciences that's widely ignored. Hmm. So well, I, I, as I mentioned, I worked with Sheila on this book, and then I remembered my dreams much more because I kind of had to. It was part of my job. And so then they would get elaborate, and it was good for her because, oh, good, you have a lot of details, and we can work on that. Yeah, well, and exactly. And, and it's interesting because one of the markers of good health is if you're getting enough sleep, you should be able to wake naturally. And if you wake naturally, you will find that you are on the threshold of dreaming and waking. And if you value the dreams and can just stay still, keep your body in the same position and just relax, you'll often find they're hovering there. And I I like to do something called night fishing at that time where I'll just grab onto one image and savor it. And often if I do that, the rest of the dream will start to come back. But you only have about two to four minutes then to recall the dreams. And so if you start going to what does this dream mean, what happened, looking for a narrative or action, you'll find they'll disappear in the same way that if you're fishing and you start thinking about, okay, this is going to be dinner tonight and I'm going to make some really special dish, you may miss the moment where you connect with the fish as you're pulling it out. Well, I, I can relate to a, kind of a variation on that because I had several jobs, especially in broadcasting. I was a video jockey overnight and then I did uh, radio overnight. And what happens is, at least for me, is that you're never quite awake when you, you know, when you go to sleep, you're never fully asleep, and then when you wake up, you're never fully awake. And then when I end those jobs, I look back, they were like a big dream. I forget all the stuff that happened during those things. And people will say, hey, did you get that book? And I go, what book are you talking about? So whole years of my life have slipped away just like these dreams disappeared. We're talking about uh, dreams, sleep, and the wellness and uh, acupressure. We ha- our guests today are Sarah Moe, uh, Sheila Asato, and Molly Glasgow. We'll be back with Think Tank of the Air in a moment. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back to Think Tank of the Air. I'm Steve LeBeau. Our guest today, Sarah Moe of Sleep Health Specialists, uh, Sheila Sato, a dream worker, well, maybe find out what that is, and Molly Glasgow, who does acupressure, but the gentle kind. And uh, to start from there, I've actually had, uh, what is it now, uh, what, where you actually have the needles, mm-hmm. acupuncture. I've, been, I've had acupuncture, and I had my uh, uh, hay fever cured. Now, is that something... Do you do hay fever or do you need the needles for that? You have been needled. Um, no. So the, the the theory with acupressure and acupuncture are the same. The points are the same. The meridians are the same. It's just different ways of stimulating the point. So one of the great things about acupuncture is that the practitioner or doctor can put all of the needles in at once and then be able to see more clients within a, a shorter time period. So usually that will make it cheaper, more accessible. Um, And for some people, they find that having all the points in at once will give them a different type of relief. So let's say you're going in for pain. Having all of the points needled at the same time means that you might feel this kind of rush of relief. And then, on the other hand, sometimes having all of those points stimulated at once means that it's a lot for the body to process. Mm. And so it really depends. I mean, it depends on your practitioner. It depends on what you're dealing with. It depends on who you are, right? Like you mentioned, you liked the pressure. And some people do. And sometimes the more subtle um, ways of healing or addressing issues are what can be best either for a specific type of condition or just a specific person. We all like different things. Some of us like it colder. Some of us like it warmer. And, um, And so the needles don't necessarily make it any more or less effective or allow you to treat something different. It's just a different way of getting to the similar goal. Why don't you like the needles? Why don't you practice needles? I really like acupressure because of the self-care aspect. So I can hold points on someone and then show them the points that I held and they can go home and use those points at home throughout the day to help address what they're dealing with. Where the acupuncturist didn't give me needles to take home. That's probably a good thing. That's probably probably a very good thing. And the the other piece I really like with it is that I'm able to um, to have a sense or to feel like I was talking about the pulses earlier. What's happening in the person's body when I'm holding the points? So I might, after we do our intake, have a particular set of points I want to use on this client, given what they're experiencing and given some of the root causes that we've been able to address. But then as I'm holding points, I might notice that certain meridians or areas of their bodies are responding differently than I may have. Um, assumed given our intake. And so I might shift the points I will use to address that throughout the session. Um, that I, I like to be able to be working with someone and kind of be in that process with them so that we're able to track it at the same time and maybe adjust the, the healing. Hmm. Um, you had a question, Sarah? I did. I wanted to add that Molly wrote a book. It is called When My Tummy Hurts, and it is a children's book about acupressure. I bought this book for my son um, last year, two years ago. Last year. Last year. And he loves it. And he has shown me how to use it. Uh, he reads it all the time, not only because it's adorable and um, entertaining for them with the stories, but it really does teach them at a level where they can understand, uh, and which he then taught me at a level where I could understand and have used it. And it is effective. It's just amazing. So have you done it yourself? I have, yes. And he will do it for me as well. He's six and he loves to, I know. <laughs> he loves to help. <laughs> okay, there's an Hold up the book so our audience can see. <laughs> when My Tummy Hurts. When My Tummy Hurts. Available <laughs> probably on Amazon. Yes, it is. It is. It and is. also local distributors. Oh, good. Good. The local uh, uh, bookstores. I mean, another. I'm thinking another good thing about um, acupressure is that that can't be farmed off overseas. I mean, it can't be taken over by, you know, some guy in India, right? It's sustainable. It's sustainable. It's here now. Well, and, and we all have to be able to take care of ourselves. And that's, that's I think, also another issue if you're bringing right. up kind of the broader systems that we're um, facing right now is that when access to health care, when access to what we need to be able to survive is getting limited or pulled back, the things that we can do for ourselves, if we can learn um, techniques to sleep better, uh, maybe Sarah, you could give a little hint of of one or two of those. If we can, if we can take messages from our dreams, if we can support our bodies, um, that's going to help us be healthier. So our body wants to work on our behalf, but we are too busy to pay attention to it, or too. Yeah, I'd say with dreaming, 
we've already got this self-healing practice that goes on anyhow every night, whether we pay attention or not. But when we get interested and just start keeping a dream journal, leaving a journal by our bed and saying, for those two to four minutes upon waking, if anything is there, I'll write it. And if it's not something I can remember, maybe I'll describe the feeling or describe what the moment of waking is and find that the dream comes back. But in the same way that if we have a regular exercise program, we don't have to understand or analyze it in order to reap the benefits. And so just tapping into our dreams every night, honoring them and saying, I know you're there. I'll pay attention to the images and then carrying some image with us throughout the day that we can just savor and enjoy in all of its bizarreness. We don't have to analyze it to have them do their work and to become um, more interested in them and develop a relationship with them. That was, oh, I'm sorry. That was one of the um, kind of tools that we used for our students. I was an adjunct professor at MCTC for years where I taught sleep medicine. And one of the projects was to have students do dream journals for two weeks. And that was one of the things that we got the most feedback on. You had to keep it by your bedside. And, you know, we didn't want to read through your personal dreams and be invasive, but just to make sure that you did document it. No, no. But uh, it was interesting to hear that feedback to say, wow, I never really paid attention to that before. Well, one thing people are often surprised by is that dreams are multidimensional. So there may be one layer that's dealing with psychological or emotional issues, another layer with maybe creative problem solving going on. But there's also a layer that's deeply um, intimate with the body. There's something called sensory incorporation. So when we're dreaming, the body is paralyzed while we're sleeping. And this is to prevent our sleeping body from getting up and, for example, running away from a monster that might be chasing us in our dreams. So we want to make sure only the dream body is up and moving around, right? But then when we um, wake up, we'll find out, for example, if the heat went off in the house of Minnesota, that could be very dangerous. So there's one level in the body that's always monitoring the external environment. And if there's extreme heat or cold, that will become an image in the dream. So it may become something that really scares us, and it will scare us into waking. So it's very often um, important to pay attention to in a dream, is there some correlation between what's going on in the dream and what's going on in my body before we jump to other psychological or other levels? I had that just the other night. I, I, I dreamed I was cold, and sure enough, I woke up, and, <laughs> and the window was open, and it got chilly one of those nights. Yeah. So. So that can be really important. Um, There's been some studies showing that, for example, the speed of dream characters in dreams can sometimes be related to metabolism. So before I go analyze a dream, work with it in depth, I may see if all my dream characters for the week are being couch potatoes. What happens if I make sure I take a long walk every day and pick up the pace? Do my dream characters speed up? If they do, then fine. I don't need to go much further. But it's good feedback all the time. Hmm. I've had these dreams where I can fly, and it's kind of an intentional thing. I know I can just think about it, and then I can float up, and then I can move along. So it's kind of, uh, it's not flapping my wings or anything. I don't have wings, you know, or flapping my arms. But uh, I kind of like that, but then I miss it. I haven't had that lately, and it's like, well, how can I have more of those flying dreams? Is there a way you can plant it? I want to dream about this. Oh, absolutely, and that's called dream incubation. So if it's something you really want to do in a dream, then you set an intention for that. And it has to be something that's emotionally relevant. So maybe um, somebody has associations with flying dreams from their youth and they used to wake up feeling really euphoric and it was very fun. So, And maybe your waking life is not feeling that joyful. So setting an intention that I want to dream about this and practicing it during the day, like um, thinking about, well, how do I want to fly? Do I do the kind of swimming flying? Well, how about if I go swimming and just practice that and imagine I'm dreaming about it? And then go to as you're falling asleep, start to um, just imagine that, what it would be like to fly in the dreams again. And you'll find that that it will probably start to increase. I'll start flying if I wake up during it and remember it. Yeah. Well, and then there's, have you heard of lucid dreaming before? I've heard of that, and that's where you kind of know what you're doing while you're dreaming. Uh, that's happened to me a couple times. Yeah, so if you are aware of the fact that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, that's called a lucid dream. And so if you become lucid in a dream, and many people do spontaneously if they keep tracking their dreams and start becoming interested in them, But at that point, you can also say, okay, now I want to try dreaming. Now, the dreams have their own way of working, just like waking life. We can't always control waking life, but we can set an intention for things we want to try out in waking life. Can't just go with the flow all the time. Yeah, 
And the same thing in the dreaming. We can set an intention to try flying, and it may end up that the whole building we're in flies or something else, or we may end up having airplane dreams or something. Hmm. But just starting this relationship with the dreaming and adding our intention and consciousness to it can be really fun and interesting. Hmm. It's uh, all a matter of awareness and, and what you do with what you what you cognize. Right. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned earlier about the muscle paralyzation that happens that's associated with REM sleep. So when we do enter REM, which is the stage where we have dreams, uh, our muscles do become paralyzed to prevent us from acting out our dreams. And that is a very important um, part of human safety. It's a really important defense mechanism. Um, That's a There's a sleep disorder called REM behavior disorder, and that is the disorder that people have when they don't have the hormone secretion to paralyze their muscles. And we've had many, many cases of really sad situations where um, patients have injured themselves or bed partners because of that lack of paralyzation. So like sleepwalking or Or worse. You know, there was a a man who came into the lab years ago uh, who was having a nightmare that his wife was being attacked by a deer and he was attempting to defend her and ended up harming her in his actions of what he was trying to do to the deer in his dream. So she was sorry, dear. Well, <laughs> but then on the other hand, we do now have um, a sleep forensic society who is able to testify in court for people that hmm. have claims of things that they've done while sleeping or dreaming that are false. And we now are able to technologically uh, prove or disprove a lot of these of sleep and, and dreaming claims, which is fascinating. Hmm. I don't know if I heard this from you, Sheila, but it used to be in, I recall in testimony against someone who might be a witch. Someone yeah. said, well, I dreamt she was a witch, <laughs> and, well, and, ref- that, and that ran in court. It, it was okay. Yeah, I think you're referring to our conversations about the Salem witch trials okay. in which dreaming was allowed in the courtroom as evidence. And it's really interesting how in each culture and each period of history, the relationship between dreaming and waking life is different. It's not something that we can just take for granted. So in that particular period, there was very little differentiation between the dream state and waking. And yet if you hear the testimony of the people that were talking about these encounters with witches and that, you would notice that they were happening when they were in altered states of consciousness or what we would call probably dreaming, which the house was locked up, the doors were closed, it was very dark, um, it was the middle of the night. And those kinds of visionary experiences are really common then. And they are all real, but it's funny how today when we say, oh, it was so real, quite often we use the word real to mean physical, part Mm -hmm. of the waking world. Dreaming is a real experience. It's just not a physical experience. We do encounter all kinds of beings, all kinds of presences. They are not physical entities at that point. And learning how to differentiate between them is a really fascinating thing in and of itself. Boy, the thing that bothers me in this current world is people will have an intense experience and they'll say, it was like a movie, as if a movie is a higher level of reality than, than regular life. But that, that, that if once you hear about that, you'll notice that happening a lot. We're talking here on uh, Think Tank of the Air with uh, Sarah Moe, a sleep specialist, uh, uh, Sheila Asato, a dream specialist, and Molly Glasgow, a pressure specialist. We'll be right back after this. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back talking about things that are good for you if you pay attention to them. And um, a question here for, for Molly. Uh, okay, I like to find my pressure points and drill them like a, you know, a huge mega drill. Um, and, that would and what, be a different technique. That would be a different technique. Um, but what I find is, you know, there are certain points and, and a, someone that does that all the time knows where those points are. What I'll find is I, if, if I'm sitting in a chair just thinking and feeling, I don't notice it. But once I put my finger on it, it hurts like hell. Is that something that you encounter too? Is that the way it is? It certainly can be, just like... Um, any sort of uh, thing that's happening in our daily life, maybe we won't notice that it's sprinkling because we're so focused on what we're doing. But then the second we pay attention, we're feeling how our shoulders are wet and everything that we're holding is getting wet, right? So sometimes it's about just how conscious we are or how tuned in we are to that specific thing. So that could be part of it. Um, another is that when you do press it, you are um, you are stimulating that point. So if there's anything built up 
um, that that pressing it can be what's causing the soreness or the discomfort because you're starting to have things move through that area where maybe they hadn't been moving before. Mm. I have a question for Molly. So I'm wondering when you were talking about the self-care aspect, which I just love about your work, um, are there points that I could use to help support sleeping and dreaming and possibly dream recall as well as working with intense dreams or nightmares? So for dream recall, um, I could I could think about that a little bit. But right off the bat, there are some points that can help with um, calming in order to be able to fall asleep more. There is one point that is on our wrist crease on the underside of the arm below the pinky. So there's a tendon there. And the point is right under the tendon. It's a heart point. Um, the heart is connected to our minds, given that we think about what we care about. And so by holding this point lightly, you can help calm the mind so you can drift into sleep. Um, other points that can help with sleep are a little harder to get to if you're laying on your pillow, but they are kidney and bladder points. So our kidney is what's associated with our adrenal glands. Our adrenal glands are what put us into our fight, flight, or freeze responses. And if we are in a, if, if in our life we are regularly stressed or regularly put into survival mode, sometimes that'll wear down our adrenals. If you've heard of adrenal fatigue or chronic fatigue, and then even though we're really tired, it's harder to fall asleep. Or if we have been having really vivid dreams, that can be a sign that there might be an imbalance as well, because even if our bodies are resting, our dreams could be stimulating that adrenaline. And so those points are, if you were to uh, almost pinch your Achilles on, on your ankle, that would simulate both a kidney and a bladder point. Hmm. Now, all these uh, connections you have, now in dreams, that's starting to be taken a look at by the academic world. But what about uh, acupunct- acupressure and acupuncture do do Western does Western medicine take those seriously at all, or are they kind of like put on the shelf? It's certainly starting to. Um, I've even noticed in the past ten years that there's been a big change. So there's the Penny George Institute in the Twin Cities. Um, Mayo Clinic is adding services. They do have acupuncture available for patients, and um, now they have a healing center called the Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center. It's it's been around for a number of years for their staff, and um, acupressure is one of the things that they provide. So um, Western medicine, I think, is is coming to a point where it's it's realizing that there are some great innovations. Um, but there is something to be said for things that kept us alive and took care of us for generations and centuries, and now trying to integrate that so that we are looking at preventative medicine as well as treating something if it arises. Hmm. Boy, do you have a comment? Just just in strong agreement. Just looking. The the other night, what I got into a habit to, once again, starting about in graduate school, that uh, if I felt like I was getting a cold or something, you know, where you can – you know, there's that first phase. I would find if I would find any painful points in my body, it could kind of prevent a cold. So I wouldn't get any more sicker. So just the other night, I was having a little nasal drip, post-nasal drip. And so I found in my legs some points that hurt and uh, laying in bed. And that allowed me to go to sleep. And, and I woke up without a cold. Well, and that brings us back to the dreaming in the body. So oftentimes, um, the body will appear in the dreams as a house. And so looking at the condition of the house and seeing what's going on, because after all, our body is the house that we dwell in. So not to just say this symbol equals this, but oftentimes, for example, if there are leaky pipes or something in the house, I will first check out and see what are systems in my body that have fluids running through them that might have a problem. And each person will have their own associations, their own correlations, their body will speak their own way. And if I can give an example, um, I used to have dreams about old Victorian houses. Now, growing up in St. Paul, that was nothing special, I thought, because I always loved those houses. But I kept having a reoccurring dream about an old Victorian house that had a staircase in the back part of the kitchen. And that was the staircase the maids and the children could use. And the rungs on the stairs were falling apart. It was really in bad condition. And I woke up very worried thinking, well, if this is related to the body, what could it be? I wasn't sure. So I went to talk to my husband, who is Mr. Finance, who usually is not very interested in dreaming, although he's getting to be more with age. <laughs> but I, I thought I was just really stuck. If this was your dream, what do you think? And he goes, oh, that's easy. Really? We said the front staircase absolutely has to be the vagina. I said, oh, come on. What have you been reading, Freud? He goes, well, no. It's like the welcome place where the bride comes down, where girls come down for their first date all decked out, and the guy is waiting at the bottom. It's like welcome. That's a beautiful place. But 
Then he noted that the back staircase is the one that only the children and the maids, the women of the house can use, right? And I said, well, yeah. He goes, well, what do you think about if it was from the cervix up? Well, that was pretty interesting. So I went to my OBGYN. I asked for appointment. I asked for a pap smear. And sure enough, I had precancerous condition. No. Yeah. And so it was called cervical dysplasia. And so she did this procedure where they freeze the end of the cervix to kill off the cells. And then in the months to come, as it was healing, I kept having these dreams about this same house with the back staircase with all the women and nieces and um, interesting people in my family, the all-female, back there helping paint and repair the stairs. And each month we went for one year to have um, a pap smear every month. And finally I got the all-clear sign. And she said, I don't want to see you back for another year. But a few months later, I had a dream, and in this dream, I'm in a Victorian house, and the kitchen's been all remodeled, and there I am in the kitchen with a new staircase, but it's on wheels, and I keep pushing it and pushing it to get it to stick to the wall so I can get upstairs, and it won't stick. So I called up my doctor, and I said, I need another pap smear, and she said, would you like a referral to a therapist? No, not actually, but (laughs) I think she thought I was crazy. And so he said, just don't worry. I know my insurance won't cover it, but please let me come in and get another pap smear. And sure enough, it was precancerous again. Wow. So everybody's body speaks in its own language in the dream state with its own images. When you start paying attention, for example, when you're getting a cold like you described, Steve, or this post-nasal drip, note that in your notes for the day. And then when you go back and review your dreams, you may see that there's a pattern of how your body expresses post-nasal drip in dreams or it may be expressing heart trouble. And then when those images appear, pay attention, do something for yourself first, and then if you've ascertained that that's not what it's about, then go on to other levels. But don't forget about the body when you're looking at the dreams. Mm, boy, dream hygiene. So Sarah, any, any, any health tips on sleeping, or is it the same? When you started 12 years ago, and there's sleep hygiene as the proper thing, is it the same now as it was, or did they, they discovered new things about sleep? We've discovered quite a bit more. In fact, there's new of, stuff. There's new stuff. Blue light influences the number one uh, negative influencer on our sleep right now. Blue light. Blue light. And our, what's our that? Cell phones, our tablets, our computers, our televisions, all of that light being emitted is uh, it's really ruining our sleep. It, neurologically is having such a negative impact in our ability to fall asleep and to stay asleep, but it is also such a big part of all of our lives that it's really nearly impossible to reduce 100%. So right now, uh, the one of the first things that sleep professionals will tell you is not to look at your phone before bed. And it is recommended um, two hours prior to bedtime to, to power down all of your electronics. And most people think that they're different. You know, oh, it doesn't, it yep, doesn't, it doesn't work for me. me. No, it is, no, I'm different. I can look at my phone directly before bed and then attempt to fall asleep. And, and most of us will have bigger issues with that because of that. Um, another one is caffeine intake. A lot of times people will consume caffeine and think, oh, it doesn't matter. I can still fall asleep, but it really does uh, have a huge impact. And then also... On top of all that is underlying sleep disorders. 30% of the population here has an untreated sleep disorder. Uh, I think now it's estimated that 88% of sleep disorders are undiagnosed. So a lot of us are really walking around with something happening that that could be or should be treated, uh, but they just don't know better than than to have it checked out. Is it, is it good to not know? It's not good to not know because <laughs> it, it could injure you. It really could. Uh, poor sleep will lead to a lot of negative things on every system in your body, as well as it could have a negative impact on society. If you're walking around sleepy and uh, you get in a car and think you're just fine and and head home, you know, that's very dangerous. Mm. Yeah. And I would um, concur with that, that together with a lack of sleep is coming dream deprivation. And dreaming is where we balance our emotions. So in the absence of enough dreaming, it really becomes a national health crisis. I think that Hmm. if we look at a lot of, for example, violent crime and that, how much of that is driven by really intense emotions and an inability to deal with them. I think that if we could just all bring back nap time in school, (laughs) it would make a second that. It's funny. I I never was able to sleep at school, but then I learned maybe, I think it was in about third grade, that if I covered myself up with a blanket, then I would uh, be able to sleep if I got warm. That's a great point because there is now, I, I think there are multi-billion dollar just advancements and in, in people saying it's worth investing in my sleep. So 
There are weighted blankets. There are sound machines. There are eye masks and earplugs. Everything that you could possibly need to achieve comfortable sleep um, is available. So I, I'm a huge advocate for investing in you know, a, a really comfortable, great sleep space that's going to help you. Because if you are somebody who uh, is fatigued frequently and, you know, you're just one of the – you know, you're not suffering from a sleep disorder. You just have everyday life issues like the, the majority of us. You know, we work, we have families, we have busy lives, and sleep takes a back burner because we were never taught that it shouldn't. Hmm. Um, then the, there are things, there are resources out there to, to help you get better sleep. Well, well, Molly, too, are there people that need acupressure and just never think about it, or maybe they've never heard of it? I mean, is, is there a lot of untreated people that need treatment? So acupressure is something that can help us address anything that's happening in our body. Um, just like there might be folks who are eating a diet that is not as healthy as our bodies could need, we start to eat different foods and realize, wow, um, eating those greens or getting more protein or getting more iron was something that my body needed that I didn't know of. So I look at it like that. It's not, um, it's not that if you don't get acupressure, your body's going to fall apart. But, um, but using these points are a way that we can balance our systems. So we're talking about sleep. Um, you know, sleep time is when our body can restore and repair itself. Um, acupressure is a way to make sure that things are moving and functioning in the way that they're supposed to, looking at kind of the root cause of what might be causing um, issues. So looking at if you need to get sleep looking at maybe what might be interfering with your sleep, looking at maybe if there are other um, emotional things happening in our lives that might be affecting our health, our bodies. Like you mentioned, um, you held points on your legs before you went to sleep, which probably uh, cleared your lymphatic system. So that could have had something mm. to do with what was going on with your cold. But also if you hadn't slept that night, your cold would have potentially gotten worse because mm -hmm. your body wouldn't have had the chance to restore and repair itself. Mm. Well, and I also want to add something about the acupressure that um, comes to mind for me because I've been raising a son who has autism as a result, as far as we know, of severe sensory deprivation the first year of his life before he came to us and the absence of touch. And I find that any kind of touch is so powerful and so healing in and of itself. And I mean touch, of course, like Steve was talking about, doing it yourself to take care of yourself, but also especially having it from somebody else in a tender, nurturing relationship I wonder if you could say something about that aspect of it. So humans, we know that we are social beings. So when we have interact with, when we have time to interact with each other, we are going to be healthier, happier people. And we're also um, social beings in that we um, we crave closeness and comfort. Sometimes, like you mentioned with your son, there are times when either we're deprived of that or the touch um, and the closeness that we're getting is not healthy and not supportive. But anytime that we can interact with one another in supportive ways, that's something that our bodies really respond to. So yes, um, hands-on modalities are a way to um, foster that that sense of connectedness with other humans. Or, or animals. Or animals. They want you to get a pet or, or even a robotic pet can help your, uh, I don't know what it does, but it helps you. Do you know what it does when, you, when you're petting a cat or a dog? Some, so, I mean, I, some chemical... I'm assuming, out. yeah, it's, I'm assuming it's chemical or hormonal. I haven't heard of robotic pets yet, though. Oh, they it, in Japan they're very big. Mm. In fact, I think Sony made them. Uh, they made a bunch of these little dogs, and they they're robotic and they react in so many ways. But what happened is, like, in, you know, in technology they change things every year, and so what happened was that they were no longer uh, making parts for these these oh. these dogs, and so they had a big funeral. Uh, I think it was a Shinto f or a Buddhist funeral, where where they uh, where the people said goodbye to their robotic dogs. Robot and pet they were, cemetery. And they were crying and everything. Oh my gosh! Uh, because they they didn't couldn't get any new parts for them. Oh, that's <laughs> so, sad. I'm sorry, I laughed. Well, well it, I think it is one of those laugh cry deals. But that's something where the dream, the imagination that we encounter directly in the dream state doesn't stop at the gateway of waking. It continues into waking life, and we might call that projection. I would say that we are infusing these objects that become so precious in our lives and giving them a space for imagination to enter into so that we well, can have an embodied experience and interact with it. Well, I, I used to work uh, in the social services before I got into media, and uh, mainly with adult males that had different sorts of disabilities, 
And one, I think, uh, was maybe some sort of mental illness, but he fell in love with objects regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he fell in love with his pillow, and he fell in love with uh, our, our log book at, at one time, and uh, just hugely passionate things. But uh, and I think kind of when he was having a cold or something, these things would, would happen. Well, and we can put we can put feelings on inanimate objects. So um, there can be attachments because, say, the pillow was something that allowed him to rest and he enjoyed the feeling of resting, or the log book was, was something good, that... It was a good pillow. Well, you know, maybe we were all sleeping on the wrong pillow. That could be a thing, too. Oh, I've got thoughts on that. Or the log book, um, you know, was able to keep him focused. And so it makes sense, like, like with this, these robotic pets, that we can put... Um, put emotions or put connections on an, on inanimate objects, um, of course, we're probably going to be healthier, more successful people if we're able to develop those relationships with living people or living beings. Um, but that that sort of emotional attachment would, would make a lot of sense why it would also help someone to have that companionship of a robotic pet. Boy, what a world, though. We can uh, find compassion in an inanimate object, but oftentimes people have very cold hearts when it comes to other people. Well, I think the distinction between inanimate and inanimate is also something we're doing in Western culture that doesn't happen everywhere. So and, pan, panpsychism. Well, and because um, Steve and I share a connection with Japan, but that's my other home, there's not that same distinction there. And as an artist, one of the things I find, um, as a dream artist in particular, is that when I take these elusive images, when I wake with them, and I savor them as I'm waking and let them infuse my body and feel their energy, then go into the studio and start working on a piece of art and create what would be called an inanimate object here. I develop a deep relationship with it. It's holding the experience of the dream. It's carrying that energy out into the world so I can release it then and have a relationship with it in waking life, which is probably not unlike what your um, the young man you talked about, his experience with his pillow or other beloved objects. Well, well when you spread it to art, I think of the Mona Lisa and all these paintings that arouse a lot of emotions too. So it's, uh, I don't know if you, I, I suppose you can build passionate attachments to, to all kinds of art. Hmm. Boy, it's getting pretty metaphysical <laughs> here. We're, uh, in fact, uh, magically our time is up. So I'd like to thank you all for, for coming here. I'm going to sleep better, I'm going to dream better, and I'm going to pressure better after today. Thank you so much, uh, Sarah Moe from uh, Sleep Health Specialists, Sheila Sato, from a dream worker and artist, and what's your monkey? Monkey Bridge Arts. Monkey Bridge Arts, self-explanatory. And, of course, from Point Acupressure, Molly Glasgow. I'd also like to thank Dan Cook, our engineer, and, of course, this is a co-production with WCCO Radio. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. I'm Leo Espinosa. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 